Welcome to the New Vision Church podcast. New Vision Church is a diverse, Bible-teaching, Jesus-centered church in San Diego, California, and exists to transform people and their communities by replicating followers of the biblical Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's this week's sermon. Good morning. Hey guys, um, Julie and I had the privilege just before service to go over to the Encanto site to get the launch off, and it was a beautiful, beautiful picture over there, man. It was a great turnout. Um, a lot of people were out there. They got off with a bang. So I know we've been praying about that. So guys, there's going to be two campuses operating at the same time, City Heights and Encanto. We're one church, but just going to be doing, trying to reach out and spread the love of Jesus everywhere we can go. And so it was a beautiful thing as it's part of our next step as a church. It's part of a kind of a marking point for New Vision as we've grown over the years. And so I know you look at this, you're saying, well, where is everybody at? Well, some of them are city heights. I mean, some of them are in Cancel this morning, uh, serving out there and going that. So I'm just trusting God as we give away, God replenishes and brings in more provision for when you do, because that's how he always works. And so we trust him in all that. Amen. Hey, there will also be a Sunday night service tonight. So if you want to come Sunday nights, those are online. Thank you for joining us. We also have Sunday nights uh, going on tonight. So five o'clock, we're going to continue to study to the book of Philippians. So if you're going to join us, you're welcome to do that tonight too. Hey, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, we're going to look at verses one through six this morning. We're going through our, continuing our sermon series on unity, talking about walk in unity. Walk in unity. There are two things that really don't mix, and we call that water and oil, right? And think about that for two things that are water and oil. When you think of the book of Ephesians, it's Paul's quest or desire that he makes two groups of people. They were like water and oil. We call them the Jews and the Gentiles because they didn't like each other and they didn't mix and they didn't get along. But the whole mission and the whole writing of Ephesians is about how Paul through teaching and evangelism, the gospel brought two people together. Let me illustrate water and oil in this way. Think about uh, salad, dress, salad dressing and mayonnaise. I know that sounds weird, but these two food products, right? You ever watch salad dressing, the oil and salad dressing? When you go originally get it, what happens? You see the oil and the water, they're separated when you get this, the salad dressing. And what you have to do is you have to, to shake it in order to, to produce the salad dressing that you want to get the flavor to put on your salad. But after you put that salad dressing down, what happens? It naturally separates, right? That's the nature of salad dressing. In some ways, salad dressing is like the nature of man without Christ. It has a tendency to separate. It has a, a tendency to go to its own nature, its own way. And oftentimes, you'll see separation in our, in our society, you'll see separation in our communities. You'll see separations in, with ethnic groups. You'll see separations with regions. You'll see separation, all that, because we naturally go to what's comfortable to us. But mayonnaise is a little bit different. Mayonnaise is made up with also water and oil. But the difference with mayonnaise, it has an emulsifier. And that emulsifier is eggs. And they put these eggs in the mayonnaise, and it makes it, what it does is it connects the two, to two substances, water, and puts it together, and it holds it together to make mayonnaise. You don't have to shake mayonnaise to mix it. It's just mayonnaise. Now, I know something like mayonnaise light, something like regular mayonnaise, but that's what mayonnaise, it sticks together. It, it, the, the emulsifier, the egg, holds it together. When you get into chapter 2 of Ephesians, Christ becomes the emulsifier because of the cross of Christ. 
He created a new man and, and a new body. And he's taken two diverse groups of people, we, Jews and Gentiles, even free enslavement. He, now they have become one body. But by the time we get to Ephesians chapter 4, which we're going to study this morning, what's happening? He's got this two groups becoming one. Now he's telling them, you guys need to walk in unity. You need to walk in oneness. And that's what we're going to talk about walking in unity this morning, right? That's been our focus the last couple of weeks is dealing out of, studying out of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians looking at unity. If you look at unity in general, and you look at the book of Ephesians, it's broken up in two parts. The first three chapters is really about theology. It's really about doctrine. It's really about all the blessings we have in God and everything that God's provided for and how we've come out of the darkness into light and that how he's made us one. And we looked at it a few weeks ago, out that, looked at that in Ephesians chapter two where he's created us as a, a new man or a new creation and then he made us one body is what he did. But by the time you get to chapter four, it's a transition. It moves from theology, doctrine, or teachings, what Paul writes in the first three chapters, to application. It moves from, from doctrine to, to duty. It, it works from faith to being faithful. It's, it's a movement now. And so God will, in Paul's writings, you'll often see that. He'll say, this is the reason why we do what we do. And so in the first three chapters, he says, this is what we believe. And this is how we apply it. In the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians is application of the faith. Because James said what? Without faith, works are dead. There has to be an application to what we believe. And I always say there's a theology, what we believe. And there's a methodology of how we apply what we believe. And Paul is now saying, it's, now it's time to apply what we believe. And that's what the book of Ephesians is really all about. And we're going to be jumping, we're going to stay this chapter this week and next week into chapter four of Ephesians. So I want to read Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six this morning, because that's what we're going to look at and we're going to break it down. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing one another in the love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your love and your blessings, for your goodness and mercy and grace. And Lord, I pray this morning as we talk about unity, as we walk in unity, may you speak to our hearts by your spirit. May you minister to our spirit that, Father, the things that we hear this morning won't fall on deaf ears, but that it moves from our ears to our heart to our feet. Because we have to have feet of faith, feet that move. And so we thank you, we praise you, we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. And everybody says... Amen. We're going to look at three things about walking in unity. Here's the first one. The call to walk in unity. There's a call to walk in unity. For those that have been in the military, say you joined the Marines, you would go to boot camp and you would get trained in boot camp. You would be equipped in boot camp to be a Marine. And it's usually about a couple of months, 12 weeks or whatever it is of hard training, military training, all these different things to become a Marine, or to get the identity of a Marine. There's a story of a young man who wanted to be a Marine. And one day in boot camp, 
He had to go through this difficult thing where he had to go underneath this barbed wire and it was all muddy and he's coming. And as he was doing that, there's bullets flying over his head. And as he's crawling on the ground, he begins to get fearful. He begins to get anxious. He, be, he begins to freeze up. He, he begins to feel the terror of war. And he's sitting on the ground underneath this on the mud, really not moving until a buddy comes alongside him and said, man, remember, you're a Marine. Because when you become as a Marine, your identity is a Marine and you move as a Marine and you operate as a Marine. Sometimes we forget that God's called us to this identity here this morning and we're, we're expected to walk in that identity. We're expected to walk in what he's called us to walk in and sometimes it's going to be crazy battle, but we have to walk in that identity as a soldier of Christ. Amen. The man was just basically, get a hold of yourself. Act like a Marine is what he was saying. And so we have to get a hold of us. And that's what Paul's trying to do here as we look at this book here. Look at verse one as he calls us to unity. And it's a challenge, but all things are possible with Christ. Look at verse one. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, be, Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. The first thing you see here is really Paul's unity with Christ. His identity in Christ. Paul's transitioning from theology to methodology, and he is currently in a prison. He's, he's locked up in the prison for a faith, his faith, and he's written a book from a prison cell. We know there are things called prison epistles. This is one of the prison epistles that Paul writes to the churches from jail because he's been incarcerated for his faith. But he, I think also as we begin to do that, we begin to see a little bit of his own identity as he begins to look at Paul's own relationship with Christ. Because he says, you're a, a prisoner of the Lord. A prisoner of the Lord. He actually makes that statement two times. He says it here and he says it in chapter one, verse three. Chapter three, verse one, I'm sorry. Where he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord to the Gentiles, he says. He's taken on this identity. He's taken on this who he is, right? A prisoner is one who's held captive. A prisoner is one who's bound. And he's been taken captive in some ways. And spiritually speaking, he's been taken captive by Christ. He's been taken captive by Christ. He is bound to Christ. He is knighted in Christ. Meaning his life is not his own. When one is imprisoned, his rights have been removed. He doesn't have any rights Paul's saying here, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though I'm in prison, I'm also a prisoner of the Lord. Jesus is my master. He's my superior. And what Paul is saying is, I'm in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm in oneness with God. I'm led by him. He is my master. I think the challenge for us in the faith, as Paul's writing to the church here in Ephesus, He's writing to the brothers and sisters of the Lord. He's calling them to remember their identities, that we are all prisoners of Christ. We are all prisoners of the Lord. We are all bondservants of Jesus Christ. We are all slaves. That's our identity. That's who we are. And that's a weird term because in our culture, we see it in a negative form. But in biblical sense, it's actually positive. In some ways, this might sound weird. You're incarcerated in the faith. That sounds negative, but it's for our good. It's for our good. We are a prisoner of the Lord. The word Lord is the title given to God. It's, a, it's an honor expressive 
of respect and reverence. God is our owner. He's our Lord and Savior. He's the one who has control over us. He is our master. We are his servants. And so we're called to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Right? In some ways, when you go to work, you have a boss, right? And you submit to your boss. He's your authority. He's your Lord. Some ways you might feel like a slave there, but the reality is he's still over. He's the overseer. God is our overseer. And we submit to his lordship. He's Lord and Savior. I mean, he's, a, he's the authority over us as much as he's a rescuer of us. That's key that we begin to understand that identity in order to do the things that God has called us to do. See, we'll never have true unity until we come under the lordship of Christ. So we have to begin to understand our position in Christ will affect our relationship with one another. So what's Paul's challenge here? What's his command here? He's exhorting us to walk in unity. If I'm submitting under the lordship of Christ and, and he, I'm following him as my master, then he's giving me a command. If he's the chief and I'm his soldier, he's giving a command here. He's, he's saying, this is what you're called to do, and I'm challenging you to walk in unity. He's urging the new believers in their walk. Because, but our identity in Christ has a lot to do with how we walk. What we believe about ourselves has a lot to do how we walk. Sometimes we've had a victim mentality, a poverty mentality, a different type of mentality that affects our walk, and we will walk in the way we think. So a man thinketh, so he is. And sometimes we've been robbed by the enemy of who we are in Christ. The whole chapter three is about the blessings that God has given us in Christ. They were already in the heavenly realms. We've been blessed by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We have been identified as his children. So we have to walk as his children. We have to walk as sons of the king. We have to walk as daughters of the king. Guys, if I, if I, if I have a kingly father, then I have a position in that kingdom. And there's an idea by which I walk in that kingdom. But sometimes we don't realize that we're citizens of heaven, that we belong to the kingdom. Now, he's calling us to a, a worthy walk. There's a worthy walk that we're called to. There's a certain conduct in our walk. There's a certain swag in our walk. There's a certain perception in our walk. That's why when people say, oh, I don't go to church because they're full of hypocrites. You heard that before, right? Why? Because there's an expectation of our walk. That's why they say that. There is an expectation. There's a, a conduct that we're required to walk. Paul is giving this exhortation in light of the blessings of chapters 1 and 3, that your walk should be equal to the value you've been blessed with. Because all the blessings are found in 1 through 3. Our walk is an outpouring of the blessings. And so your, your walk, we are to walk in a way that reflects this new life that we found in Christ. There is a walk. There's a, there's a call. A call, call, he's calling us to this walk. He's challenging us to the walk. But I'm going to challenge you even more. I'm reading out of the new King James Version. If you are the old school King James Version only, right? Some of the these and the thous of the old school, right? Here's King James Version. It's going to give you a different twist of this verse. Look at this. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy, here it is, of the vocation wherewith you are called. Ooh. That gives you a different, different insight, right? 
Each of you have been called by God to serve him where he has placed you. Jenny talked about gifts this morning in our prayer time. He's gifted you. He's placed you where he's placed you for a specific call and purpose. Think about this for a moment. When I ask you what your vocation is, Many would say, well, I'm a teacher, or I'm a doctor, or I'm a student, or I'm a whatever it is that you do, because vocation is often equivalent to what we do. But here, if you open up the Webster's, Webster's Dictionary for vocation, it means a divine call to be to the religious life, or an inv- invitation to embrace the gospel, or also a call to share the gospel. That's what the Webster's Dictionary defines vocation to mean. What is Paul saying here? He has called you and positioned you to be a light for the gospel. Wherever he has placed you, whatever work, whatever call. I was with some young students for college students yesterday with crew sharing with them. um, And they were talking about how one kid, his name was Nathan, was studying to be a doctor. And how he is, but he's a man of the faith and he wanted to talk. We talk, I really feel passion for medicine, but he's strong in his faith. And I said, So your pulpit is not this pulpit like me. Your pulpit might be an examination room. Your, your pulpit might be with the nurses and the other doctors. That's your, your, your influence by which God has called you with this giftedness is to use your calling as a platform, your vocation as a platform to preach the gospel and to be the light. Each of you today have been given a platform. You might be, man, I hate my job. I hate my boss. Then you missed your identity and the platform by which God has given you. Each of you have been ordained. Fill it for the blank. What would it be? Each of you are ordained blank. Fill in blank. I'm ordained to what? I'm ordained to work at McDonald's right now. You're like, oh, Pastor P, you don't know McDonald's. I'm, a, I, I'm, a, I'm ordained to work at Alberto's. Oh, man, somebody like that one. But, um, but, the, but the reality is God has ordained you for such a time and place. I'm a prisoner, Lord. You put me where you want me to put me. And some of those bunkers are different places. Some of those military positions are different. I'm going behind enemy lines. Right, I'm, I'm working in my culture. I'm marketplace ministry. I'm involved where you put me. You're planning me where you put me. So don't Complain about your situation. God, pray, how can you use me in this situation? But God might just have a divine meeting for you with somebody that you need to know to touch their lives. Now, I think of Pastor Rob Martinez, who's had such an influence at his job with his workers. Some of you might be here because of him. Just having Bible studies at his job during lunchtime. Offering invitations to us to come be ministered to during lunchtime. Just being a, a, a testimony to the people. He's using his position of influence at his job for the kingdom. That's his vocation. Though he has descriptions of that vocation, his real vocation is building the kingdom of God. That's what he's called to. So that's the first thing. We are called. We are called to unity. We are called to oneness. We've got this identity. And then we got this call. Here's the second thing. The character of a walk in unity. There's a certain swag or certain walk. There's a certain way we live out unity today right? When, when I was uh, younger, I, I played football. Not many of you know I played football. And I started when I was Pop Warner football. For those of you who played sports, Pop Warner was a big thing. And I remember as coaches used to come and coach us as little kids. And I always remembered this one thing that the coach always told me was this. 
The lower man always wins. The lower man, what he was saying is that when you got on the line or you got in a defensive position and you want to approach, if I can get lower than my opponent and come and leverage his weight, I can get him off balance and I can be able to penetrate and move forward because I would have the leverage to do that. When you talk about here the character of walking in a unit, in some sense, there's some spiritual truths in this. This is in the, in the same way. We have to humble ourselves. We have to lower ourselves in order to have influence with those around us to lever the things around us, right? We, we, in fact, but the theme was that the lower man wins. That's the idea here, right? And in fact, we often hear that we have to think of, of others better than ourselves, or and having that mind that God has given us. And so Paul is impressing us in his writing to go low, not to go high. We got to take on the mindset of John the Baptist that I must decrease so that he can increase. Going low. We, that's, that's, not, that's not a favorable thing in our culture, to be humble, to be that. And that's where we look at this morning. So here's, in verse 2, it begins with this. Walking with others in mind. To build unity, we have to walk with others in mind. Look at verse 2. Walk with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. We're called to love others in a loving manner. We're called to serve others in a loving manner, caring for others in a loving manner. He uses the word here, lowliness, with all lowliness. All lowliness is just another word for humility, right? He's talking to us that we have to be humble in mind. We have to have a, a mind of humility, having a, a lower opinion of oneself in the sense of modesty. It's not saying, man, I'm a terrible person. That's not what Paul's saying. Not at all. He's saying is, we're not, we're not better than anybody else. And not anybody else is better than me. Right, right? We're all created in the image of God and the likeness of God. But I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all start at the base of the cross together. I don't care what you achieved and haven't achieved. We still got to go to the base of the cross. We start there, right? In fact, the word humility, long served the word humility in that Greek culture was never a word. There was a no word to describe in Latin and Greek the word humility. In fact, some either believe Paul created this word or the church created the word to describe lowliness or humility in the culture because they didn't like the character of humility. They're like men that were strong in the Olympics and, 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 and feats and things. That's why they had in the Greek culture, they had all these gods that were heroes and strong, right? Humility was not a, a, a virtue in the Greek culture, in that culture. In fact, the word humility was despised in the Greek culture of the day. But take on the writings of Paul when he references Jesus in the book of Philippians, another pastoral epistle written from prison. Look what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3. They do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Here it is. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was a form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, talking about Jesus, and being found in a human form. Here it is. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The God that we worship, Jesus that we worship, humbled himself. He left the heavens to come to the earth. He, he came and put on skin and, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and he walked with us and he served us. The creator who was at the creation, who was part of the creation, walked the, washed the disciples' feet. Not only the disciples' feet, he washed Judas's feet. And then he says, do likewise the humility of Christ. Christ is the one we follow. Imitate Christ. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He later writes, imitate Christ. He is our master. He is the one we imitate. He is, he is the one that came with all humility. He set the example. In fact, Jesus even described himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, that he was gentle and lowly in heart. Humility is a Christian virtue. And he gives grace to the humble, the Bible says in the scriptures. And if you're humbled, the humble I will exalt, but the proud I would cross out cast out. In fact, if you study Paul's life, from the time he came to faith to the time he basically, traditional history, got his head cut off, you begin to see Paul's own humility. I'm a sinner, sinner of all, chief sinner. You just see his humility. In fact, the book of Philippians 3 says to me who I'm less than the least of all the saints. Paul referred to himself as that. I know this, in light of my walk, which I've been walking almost with the Lord 40 years since I was 17, I begin to understand the, the significance of the crucifixion, the cross in light of who I am and how, how dark I was as a person and just my own frailties and my imperfections. The more I got to stay under the light because the more I stay under the light, my shadow goes away. But if I stand this way, you could see more of my shadow. But if you stand directly under the light, you won't see my shadow. May I always stand under the light of Christ. That people don't see me, but they see Christ in me. The hope of glory. See, that's how we're called to walk. That I must decrease so that he can increase. That people can see Jesus. They can see Jesus in me. That's what we're called to be like. That's the humility, right? Because pride and arrogance brings disunity. That's why Paul writes Titus about those that were arrogant in chapter 3, verses 19. He goes, but, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. He said, look at all these things. That people people want to argue for the sake of arguing. Guys, just go to Facebook. Everybody has opinion about everything. Let me tell you something. Facebook is not a place to debate and dialogue because it, no, it gives no platform for discussion. It just blasts you if you don't believe the way I believe. Right? What is he saying here? Avoid foolish disputes, contentions, striving about the rules. They're unprofitable and useless. You know what I say with people? Don't waste your saliva. Don't waste your saliva with all the battling and stuff. In fact, it says in verse 10, he says, look how hard that Paul writes to young Titus, the young pastor. Reject the device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. He's only bearing himself. Those that want to bring, bring division, those that want to bring their opinions, those on this, I'm always right, I'm on, boom, 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 you know what I mean? 
He says, hey, work with them, but if it doesn't work, man, look at the word he uses, reject. That's a big word. That's the, you know, that's like, that's the word we get to vomit, right? Projectile, you know what I mean? People don't like, people don't like that word. People don't like to talk about that in the church. He says, when the first and second admonition, maybe there's a, somebody in the body who's divisive. You have to go to Matthew 18 to look at, there's somebody in the sin, you first talk to him privately. If that doesn't work, you bring somebody else. If that doesn't work, you bring him to the church. If he doesn't want to change his way, you know what the Bible says? If he doesn't want to change his way, kick him out of the church. Read Matthew 18. It, that's what it talks about. We don't see that happening in the church too often. Oh, but Pastor Pete, that's not loving. Dude, I don't let the wolves in my sheep cage. Listen, listen, there, there's got to be a protection of the sheep. And if there are people that are coming to devour the sheep, you kill the wolf. You cast them out, right? And there's times where you have to do that. There was one time in the history of my the ministry that I was serving that I had to ask a guy not to come back, that he was a wolf. Because you're, you're feeding and praying on my sheep. If he repents, he could come back. But I'll give him the golden boot. I have no problem, guys, giving the golden boot in this place if I feel there's something that's going to bring harm to the body. I will do it. And we see here, giving us that command, right? Not only loneliness, but he talks about gentleness. Gentleness. And gentleness, another word for gentleness is meekness or mildness or milded spirited, right? Gentleness is really power under control is what that means. Power that is reined in. In fact, Greeks that refer to an animal that has been tamed. That's kind of the concept here, right? It's one who has great force, but has been brought under submission and obedience to the trainer. That's meekness. That's, that's what it is. Guys, think about horses, right? Some of you have cars that have horsepower. <laughs> but that, that car can only go as fast as the one driving it, right? The horse can be restrained by the rider, can be held back by the rider, controlled by the power of the rider. Moses was described as the meekest man who had ever lived, right? But his strength was controlled by God as he faced Pharaoh. So this gentleness is power under control. We also know that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 21 and 22, right? We are to serve, if we want unity, we are to serve with gentle and a kind spirit. We're not to be brash or rude with one another. That's not what we're called to be, right? We do not use harsh words with each other. Notice that he puts these two words together in the same verse. Because loneliness and gentleness is like the tandem bicycle. It works together for the furtherance of unity. Humility and gentleness walk together to bring unity. That's important. But then he also says this, right? That we're to be patient with, with others. Look at, says he uses the word long-suffering. Long-suffering. Patience, long-suffering there is, is, is another word for patience. means to suffer long. That's why he says long-suffering, right? Long-suffering is a, is a spirit that never gives up, never concedes defeat, right? That we're, we're patient with people. It means we want to go the second mile with them without reward. Sometimes, how many people have you helped that just didn't appreciate your help? Appreciate your help? didn't acknowledge your help. How many times have you helped people over and over again and they just seem, can't seem to get it? How many times have you been through the pain of helping others? 
How many times have people helped you over and over and you were a pain to them and were unthankful and ungrateful? Because your humility and gentleness will have to go a long way. Has to go long suffering, right? But also, you have to understand this, guys. I want you to see this. Patience is believing God's timetable is good. What does that mean? Right? Abraham waited a long time before he had his first child. Right? There are, there's a long time. I waited 32 years for my, my dad to pray with me to receive Christ, praying him for 38 years. Sometimes God's timetable isn't our timetable. And so we need to be patient and trust in God. God, you're, you're always on time. I'm trusting you're always working. I don't, know, you, I don't know your circumstances. I don't know what you're praying. I don't know your situation. But be patient in it because God's still working it all out. Whether you realize it or not. And we're called to be gracious. Here's the third. We're called to be gracious with others, it says here. Bearing with love with one another. Caring with love. Bearing up with caring for one another in love, it says, right? Bearing is another word for forbearance. We're forbearing one another, meaning we're tolerance of others and seeking their well-being. Looking out for the best interest of people. And what does it say here? It talks about love, forbearing and love. Love is, the, love is the oil that makes things work. It is the foundation of the Christian faith. Because 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, bearing all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's love. That's a description of love. Jelly <laughs> and I love to take our dog, Benny, out for walks. We were out at the Coronado late last night watching the sunset, walking our dog. We love doing that. And my dog's not very big. It's really small. But when it sees big dogs, for whatever reason, it gets self-conscious. And it thinks it's got to attack the big dog. He'll go by little dogs, won't do anything. He sees a big dog. He sees a pit bull. He sees a German shepherd. And he just argh, starts getting crazy and yapping and, and wants to bite and growling. I'm like, are you a fool? Right? You know what forbearance and tolerance is? It's those little dogs barking at big dogs, and big dogs pay no mind to it. It bears insult and injury without complaints. Some people are going to be like, yip, 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 in the church. Like, okay, ble blessings to you too. I know you're not in your right mind right now. You know what I mean? Shemai was a character in the Old Testament that just got, tried to get David's ear right, blasted him. He was part of, of, of Saul's family and, and hated David. And his mighty men wanted to kill him. And David, just let him be. Just let him be. Let him, let him do his thing. Just let him be. Maybe God wants to do something, teach us something. That's how David responded, responded to Shemai. Right? Later on, Shemai ended up getting killed because he violated a rule that David had given him by grace and mercy, and he ended up getting killed. But, but the reality is, guys, we have to be gracious, bearing one another with love, right? That love here is agape love, that unconditional charity or benevolent love. First Peter 4, 8 says this, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Guys, we need to be forgiven a multitude of times, and we need to forgive others a multitude of times. What is Paul doing here? So talk about this character of unity. He's talking about the attitude of our hearts. That's what he's doing here. Then he says, walking, he's challenged to, to walk in peace of mind. Look at verse three. In, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring 
to keep unity, working toward unity, being diligent toward unity. You know what unity does? Unity takes work. We could walk away and say, I don't want to deal with that. No, we have to engage conflict. We have to engage things that we want to bring unity in, right? He's saying make every effort to keep the unity. In fact, their word endeavoring means to, to take haste. It's an urgent matter. Don't, don't neglect it. Many of relationships, many of families break down because they neglect the conflict that they have to engage in. And they're fearful of it and they don't know how to handle it and they don't have the tools. Guys, you can't hide from the elephant in the room. You have to engage it graciously, right? Paul writes often in scriptures, if all possible, as much as it depends on you, be live peaceful with all men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Romans 14, 19, Romans 12, 18. Guys, New Vision Church, we work to build unity. We keep unity. And we keep that which God already created. And the Holy Spirit is the power that sustains our unity. It says the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? It's the glue. The Spirit is the glue. It's like the ligament that connects the body together. It's the rope that holds everything together. Unity is maintained by the Spirit. And in the church, by the Spirit, we become peacemakers. We become peacemakers. A peacemaker speaks the truth in love. A peacemaker speaks the truth. Paul will address that in the book of Ephesians. He'll say, speak the truth in love. Not in arrogance, not in revenge, not in spite, but in love. In a gentle way. In fact, Galatians says, when you correct a brother, do it gently unless, unless he fall. Right? Gentleness. There it goes back. Lovingly. Peacemakers take risk of pain. Some say, when you try to make peace, it, it might be painful to do it. Right? It might be hard to do it. There's a risk element when you want to make peace. When you want to keep unity. You, may, it's, you become vulnerable. You open up to try to keep unity. People might take advantage of it. Or might reject it. Peacemakers are fighters, right? They work toward reconciliation. That's their mission. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with one another. That's in the bond of peace, right? First Corinthians 1.10, he opens up the book with this. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in the thought, one thought and purpose. Unity. Unity. Keeping the bond of unity. There's a character quality to bring in unity. And he talks about the humility, gentleness, loving, gentle, bearing one another. This is the character qualities we're called to be as a church. But he closes us with this. The creator is a central, the creator is central to our unity. The creator, that's God, is central to our unity. I love, and I grew up listening to rock music. I used to play in heavy metal bands for those who didn't know that. I was a drummer in a heavy metal band. There was the days that I had long hairs, earrings, Show the picture. spandex pants. 
everything. I even played in a Christian heavy metal bands uh, growing up. So I love rock music. I, they call it classic rock now, because I'm old, right? For us of the day, the 80s, the 90s was rock, but now it's called classic rock. You guys listen to different music. We listen to good music, okay? Real rock and roll, you know, when they played real instruments, right? When they didn't have all this technology in it, man, they, they did it right, right? But in the rock world, there's bands called power trios. Remember the power trios? That would be Rush. That would be The Police. That would be ZZ Top for those Southern rock guys. That would be Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Like, I'm giving some old history bands right now. Back in the day, even when Hendrix played, he played, it was a trio. There was a power trio when they played in the days, right? What's a power trio? A power trio is actually just a, a band made up of three people, usually a bass, a drums, and guitar, and they made beautiful music, and they've had different instruments, right? They had different positions and roles it played. One played the bass, one played the drum, one played the, the guitar, but their independent giftings made one band that sounded great, sounded beautiful. For those headbangers, we'd bang our heads, <laughs> right? Back in the day. Let me tell you something. When you get into verses four through six, God reveals his power trio. It's called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Three in one. Three persons, one God. The trio plays a role in the unity of the church. We see that in verses four through six. Working in the body, it makes such beautiful music through his people. But notice the emphasis of one when we read four through six. The Trinity is the picture of that oneness with its own diversity that serves. And Paul lists seven things that bring unity through the Trinity. We see the Holy Spirit brings unity. Look at verse four. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Right? One spirit. Notice if you read your Bible, it's a big S, not a small S. Big S, Holy Spirit. That's what you see in the text, right? In fact, if you go all the way back to the book of Acts, right? It, it, it usually is titled the Acts of the Apostles. But I think that's a wrong title. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit is what it should be titled because the whole book of Acts is really about the power and the activity of the Holy Spirit inside men, right? It's the work of the third person of the Trinity here as we talk about the Holy Spirit, right? It was the Holy Spirit that spoke in Acts chapter 13 to separate Paul and Barnabas for missionary journeys to begin and birth the church. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit fills. The Holy Spirit grieves when we sin. God feels it. He's a person. When you've been hurt by something, somebody, you feel that pain. God feels our mess. When we go away and cause it, he feels it. Just like other people on earth feel it, whoever we might find. He feels it. But the work of the Spirit is the power for us to walk in unity. We see that here in the pact. What? To be one body, it says. One body, one spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We studied this last week, but I wanted to repeat it because it connects everything. For by one spirit, we were baptized into one body, whether Jews, Greeks, whether slave-free, they have all been made to drink into one spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is the baptizer of the body. I talked about that last week. 
I took some of you, we baptized you in the water at the beach. I baptized you in salvation. Then then Jesus baptized you in the spirit. We read that because John says that. There's one mightier than I, John the Baptist, come not baptize you, but baptize you with the spirit. And then now the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body and makes it one. He's the baptizer. He's the one we are to be immersed in. And we become one family, one unit. And we're to march in unison with one mission to expand the kingdom of God. For what? One hope, it says. One hope. Hope has a lot of words in the scriptures. There's the, the hope of salvation, right? We're praying for the hope of self, hope for people to come to Christ. So whoever believes shall be saved. The hope of salvation. Some of you are praying for your family members that they would, have, they would come to know the Lord. There's hope in that. There's the hope of his return. We call it our blessed hope that his glory is appearing. We expect that. We anticipate that. Bible says we're to watch the signs and the times here. And then what? There's hope of heaven. Our eternal life. And we share in his glory. That's our future hope. That's our future destiny. And God has called everyone, but not everyone's heard and received the call. That's our hope. All done by the Spirit. The Spirit will draw men unto Jesus. The Spirit will call you. Some of you were moved by the Spirit. Some of you felt the Spirit. Some of you received Christ because something was happening in you and God was calling you by the Spirit. Then he says, Christ brings unity. Look at verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Right? The word one Lord references Christ. Is referring to Christ. Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. He says this, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through him we live. So we, to be referenced, Christ was also referenced as one Lord. That's Jesus. One Lord is Christ who came in the flesh, was crucified, was buried, rose again on the third day for the forgiveness of sin and will return again. That's one Lord. And one Lord opened the door for one faith. One faith, right? Christ is the object and the focus of our faith. We are saved by faith, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. How do we overcome the world? Even our faith, the Bible writes. Jude challenges us to contend for the faith that was delivered to us or given to us in Jude 1, 3. And that this faith that we received is to be passed on to faithful people, 2 Timothy 2, 2. This faith. And then this one faith leads to one baptism, Right? that we begin to identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and we're becoming one with Christ and others in the faith in our act of baptism. The baptism is unifying us as a body. And then we walk in the baptism of the Spirit, as Paul commanded us in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the power that we're to walk in our unity. But then the third person of the Trinity is God the Father, right? God the Father brings unity. Look at verse six. One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. One God. If you're Jewish background and you come from the Jewish faith, we know that is the Shema, which is a passage in the book of Deuteronomy chapter six, which says this, oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
The Lord is one. Elohim, Yahweh, is one. That's where we get the, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but that's where we get the oneness of God. Amen. And the God of God the Father, God is the Father of faith. And we are one family with one Father, the Father of all. The Father of all. Think about this. Many of you know the Lord's Prayer. It opens up what? Our Father. He's our Father in the Lord's Prayer. It's a community. It's not my Father. He's our Father as a community, right? Who is eternal, preeminent, and dwells in us. He lives in us. As I close this morning, I just want to make a, share a quote with you from John Hughes, a pastor, and is writing on a commentary in Ephesians. He says this, What are the implications of our unity being rooted in the Trinity? Simply this, our unity is eternal and unbreakable. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. If there's no more possible, if it is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. You can't do it. Forces may come to bring disunity, but it will not destroy the church. So I, I close with this, guys. I close with this thought. The last three things here, just to close, summarizing it. Here, number one, we have been given a call to walk with unity. We're urged to walk with unity, right? A call, we have an identity. Wherever that is, we as one. Here's the second thing. We, are, we have a certain character traits to our unity. There's a certain way we are to walk with humility and lowliness and patience and bearing up with one another. We are to walk. These are the character qualities of a believer who are filled with the Spirit, who are manifesting love. And lastly, guys, the worship of our Creator is central to our unity, that we understand that the Trinity has a role in keeping everything together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have a role to our unity. That's the power. That's what we're called to walk in. Let's pray as we close. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you. Lord, for this morning, we thank you for your love and blessings, for your goodness and mercy and grace. And I pray, Lord, as um, we close off this morning, we thank you that, Father, you bring us to be one. And that, Father, the people will see that we are one. The world will see that we are one. What a testimony that will be as it's so much disunity right now with everything. Father, they need to see an entity. They need to see something that is one. So we thank you and we praise you. And we honor you this morning for the unity you give us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. Contact us or learn more at our website, newvision.city. See you next time.